0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor
1: Sam Allen. More often than not, if a story takes place in the evening, you find Jesus eating with people. Why? Because that's where real fellowship took place in their generation. Not in the fields as you were working, or not in the marketplace when you were shopping, not even in church as they were, or their synagogue in their context when they were worshiping. Real fellowship took place around the dinner table.
0: A Friend of Sinners, a new message from Pastor Sam out of Matthew 11. Jesus continues to discuss John the Baptist, saying that John's message of repentance seemed hard and disciplined, and his own message was mixed with celebration. And yet the generation of that day would listen to neither of them.
1: Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, picking up at verse 16. The title of our message, A Friend of Sinners. It's ironic that this phrase that means so much to me, and if you understand it, so much to many of you, was first used in a derogatory, accusing way. They said of Jesus, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I don't understand the tax collector part, but I'm grateful for the sinner part. Well, you understand, of course. Not most of us are tax collectors. Not most of us will ever be. Not many of us. But, but, We are all sinners. And to know that Jesus is a friend of sinners, that he has compassion on us, that he doesn't just see us as a nuisance or trouble or can't wait to get past them or through with them, but he cares for us. If you grew up in Sunday school, as I did, the early years at least, you will recall that song, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. and if you have a four or five or six- year old when they get to that part, it's always he is strong or you know they do their impersonation of our future Governor Arnold. but that particular song is some very serious theology wrapped up in a in a very simple children's song, and here's what I've learned over these last twenty years or 25 years of studying the Bible, is that the most important things that we ever learn are often the very first things that we learn, the simplest things that we learn, and that Jesus loves us is profound, and that Jesus is a friend of sinners, it's profound. You see, Jesus was being accused of being a friend of sinners by people who, well, They were sinners themselves, but didn't consider themselves to be. They thought they were a bit beyond that, a bit more spiritual than the average, a bit more righteous than the rabble. But Jesus accused of being a friend of sinners. Now, the Bible says a friend sticks closer than a brother. That's good to know. That means when your brother forsakes you, Jesus is still there for you. The Bible also says a friend loves at all times. That means even if your family writes you off, Jesus never writes you off. Well, Jesus loved them enough and he loves us enough to do at least these four things. Now, there's so many more things he does for us, but in this particular text and passage, some very practical things that we find our Lord doing. First of all, he loved them enough And he loves us enough to tell us the truth. He told them the truth about themselves and he tells us the truth about ourselves. Look at verse 16 with me. What shall I like in this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber, and here it is, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Jesus loved them enough to tell them the truth. And the Bible says we're to speak the truth in love. Our motivation for speaking the truth must be love. And the manner in which we share should be loving. But the bottom line is, love tells the truth. Now when Jesus looked at the multitudes, and we saw this just a while back, he had compassion on them, for they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. But when he looked at this group of, well mockers, and that's what they were. He saw them like spoiled children, criticizing, complaining, like the children, he says, would gather in the marketplace and some would say, hey, let's play wedding. But their friends didn't want to dance. So then they'd say, well, let's play funeral. But their friends weren't interesting and interested in mourning. He says that's what the people that he's dealing with here were like. They wanted to play, and when you didn't go their way, well, they criticized, they complained. Now, he applies this whole thing in a very profound way. He says, and we read it already, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Now, John, if you're unfamiliar with him, and many of you have been studying through Matthew with us, John the Baptist was more into fasting than feasting. He wasn't all that gregarious. He wasn't what we would call a people person. Now, that didn't mean he didn't love people. Or care for him or have a ministry to him. It just means he was more, well, to himself. He lived out in the desert, kind of a nomad, dressed a little funny. We talked about his diet a couple weeks ago, wild locust and honey. And, and so, you know, not many people coming over for dinner. What are you having tonight, John? More wild locusts. Pass, you know? And then there was that whole word thing. You remember. You'd say, hey, how's it going, John? Or what's up? And he'd say, repent. But, well, you know, not that many people are going to keep coming by if that's all you got to (laughs) say. By the way, when it comes to the word repent, I touched on this, I know, when we first saw John proclaim it. It was the first word out of Jesus' mouth after his baptism and and as he came out and began his public ministry, repent. It's an important word in the gospel because it, you can't possibly believe unless you turn from unbelief. That's what it means to repent, to turn from your unbelief to belief. You can't really walk in the light if you're continuing to walk in darkness. So that's what it means to repent, to turn from the darkness and walk in the light. You can't walk in the truth and in deception at the same time. So you turn from deception and you walk in the truth. And so it is. John called them to repent, and it didn't make him the most popular guy in town. Now, I think that the, those who were evaluating him, though, criticizing him, condemning him, went a bit overboard. I mean, think about a society where being sober-minded and serious would, in their minds, constitute some kind of demonic possession. I can't even begin to imagine how bizarre that would have sounded to John or to Jesus. But it's interesting. Jesus makes no defense of John, nor does he defend himself against the absurd charges they make toward him. Why? Because they were so absurd, no one thinking rightly would have possibly believed him. And so John comes calling them to repentance. Some did repent, by the way. Some said, well, what does it mean to repent? And he explained it to them. But but he says, John, neither eating nor drinking, they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, right out of the book of Daniel, definitely a messianic title, says he came eating and drinking, and and they say, look, A gluttonous man and wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by your children. Now, Jesus was a people person. He was more into feasting than fasting. Not that he didn't fast. Oh, he did. But more often than not, if a story takes place in the evening, you find Jesus eating with people. Why? Because. That's where real fellowship took place in their generation. Not in the fields as you were working or not in the marketplace when you were shopping. Not even in church as they were, or their synagogue in their context when they were worshiping. Real fellowship took place around the dinner table. And so they would spend hours eating together and conversing. There was no radio in the background. There was no television show to catch in a few minutes so they fellowshiped there was intimacy there was communion there was a connection there was there was a sense of family and community that we're well we're losing it and you know that but but Jesus you find him in the midst of people and it turns out that Jesus was just as comfortable or more comfortable in a group of sinners that knew they were sinners than in a group of sinners that didn't know they were sinners you see everywhere Jesus went he had to fellowship with sinners cuz that's all he had to That's all the planet is, you see. And so, Jesus accused of being, well, one who overindulged, ate too much, drank too much, drank and ate to excess. Now, Jesus doesn't address it or defend himself, which to me says those are absurd charges. As much as that that John was demon-possessed, that Jesus was a glutton and drunkard, it's just not going to play out. And while we don't have anybody here today that was there that day, No one is reporting this kind of thing except the enemies of Jesus. And you know one thing I've learned over the years? Sometimes you can learn more about a person by what their enemies say about them than what their friends say. And these guys having no real accusations to make come up with these absurd accusations. Well, Jesus would have said, if he had to plead, you know better to the first charges, and to the last, friend of tax collectors and sinners? Well, he would have certainly copped to that. No no problem. No contest. Absolutely guilty. I love tax collectors. I love sinners. I'm a friend to and of tax collectors and a friend of sinners. Well, in any case, we begin all this looking at Jesus' rejection. And that's what happens in those first verses. Jesus tells the truth to people that are rejecting him. Not because he's angry or frustrated, but because they needed to know the truth. The multitude's sheep without a shepherd. The mockers spoil children, criticizing and complaining. Then he goes on in the next few verses, verses 20 through 24, to warn them that with knowledge and privilege comes responsibility. We all know the principle, to whom much is given, much will be required. And that's what he says as you look there into verse 20. He began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not Repent. See, there's that word again. Even though Jesus was so different than John in mannerisms and his outward uh, appearance and, and manifestation of who he was, they had a common mission and a common message. And that was to call people to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. The one difference, of course, is John was pointing people to Jesus. Jesus was drawing people to himself. Now, years ago i heard a story of these painters and it kind of applies we've been doing some painting and it came to mind but but they were they were a little bit unethical in their painting. They would actually water down their paints. And and so what happened is they were painting a house and, and uh, you know, just a, a real nice uh, little old lady and they paint her house and they, they water down the paint as they always do. And that night, one of them woke up to what he thought was uh, uh, like sort of a heavenly visitation and, and, uh, and, and it said something to him and freaked him out and he put the sheets over his head and went back to sleep and then he thought, oh, it was just a bad dream. And then the next Next night, same thing happened, but it happened to his brother. Well, neither of them told each other and the third night happened to both of them. And, and so they got together and they, they were freaking out. I mean, they, they came to the house in the morning. They tell the little old lady, hey, we got to repaint your house. And she's like, repaint my house? You fellas did a wonderful job. No, no, we really didn't. We, we, we thinned down the paint and, and, and we're really sorry and we got to repaint your house. And she's like, well, why do you want to repaint? I mean, what, what caused the change? And they said, well, in the middle of the night we had this heavenly visitation and and this angel stood over us and said, Repaint thinners! (laughs) In any case, the message is simple. We're not called to repaint, but we are called to repent. And, and, And it's important that we realize as Christians... When we share the good news that that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, that that the need to repent is sort of built into all of that. If he died for our sins, then we have to admit and confess we're sinners and we need to be willing to turn from our sin and turn to him. And so it's a word that needs to be in our vocabulary and I think we want to use it Probably more the way Jesus did, you know, than maybe how John the Baptist did. But hey, whatever God calls you to. There are some people that just need someone to get in their face. And uh, there are people that God has fitted for that uh, responsibility. But in any case, we know Jesus loves sinners because that's evident throughout Scripture. Jesus Loves and is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But, but note this, he will judge the unrepentant. And that's why he brings it up. He says he began to upbraid these cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, the cities that he mentions here, and there are three, they sort of formed the nucleus around Capernaum, his headquarters, during the time of his Galilean ministry. And, and so what happens is that They had seen the miracles that Jesus was working. Now, we saw just a week or two ago, John the Baptist, a time of confusion, depression. He's in prison. He's starting to have some doubts. He sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Jesus says, go back and tell them what you see. And we saw this earlier in the chapter. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now that was enough to comfort and console John the Baptist in prison. And it should have been enough to convict and convert those who were, well, and there were many, observing the miracles and yet attributing even those miracles to demonic activity. You see, they didn't just say of John, he must be demon-possessed. Look how he lives. Look what he eats. Look how he acts. Listen to what he's saying. No, they accused Jesus of working by the power of Satan. By the way, that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Attributing to God's work. That are taking God's work and attributing that to Satan. Well, in any case, at this point, he begins to pronounce woes. And, and this is a word you really don't want the Lord speaking to you. See, woe to you. You don't want to hear it. It's a, sort of on the line of depart from me. You don't want to hear it. So, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, this speaks of their responsibility. They saw so much, they heard so much, they experienced so much. And I was thinking that, well, we're sort of like that in America today. Over 90% of Americans claim to be some form of Christians. But when they pull them about actually reading the Bible or knowing anything from the Bible or even knowing what John 3.16 is, multitudes are oblivious. Well, here's the thing. We've got the Bible. I don't know if you're aware. There are still countries around the world where it's illegal and, you know, Punishable to have a Bible. I met a missionary only last year who had spent years and years behind the Iron Curtain, and and uh, she was in one of those towns. You hear these stories, true stories, where where they were arresting people, imprisoning people just for having Bibles. Her father had been a pastor. They took a Bible and they took every page out of it and passed it out and throughout the town, so everyone had one page of the Bible to memorize. And they would get together and they would whisper the word of God to one another because to publicly proclaim it or read it out loud, you did so under peril of, of imprisonment or even death. And we're living in that kind of world. And here we have it. You know, the Bible's still a bestseller worldwide. Is that amazing? With all the Bibles that are given away and we've given thousands, just our little church, thousands of Bibles over the years. But with all that are given away, all the ones that the Gideons put in hotel rooms, people are still just buying them, buying them and buying them. But the question is, are we reading them? And then are we obeying them? Not how many do we have, but are they doing us any good? Well... With knowledge, with privilege comes responsibility. And and when I read this, I realize, of course, God holds me to a higher standard. Why? I spend more time in the Word of God than most people. And He holds you to a higher standard than maybe some. Why? Because you're in a church where the Word is being taught. If you come every week, you're going to study all of Matthew. If you come for a few years, you're going to study all the New Testament. If you come on Wednesday night, you're going to go through the entire Old Testament. All the way through. And so, and I'm not trying to discourage you from coming, because some of you, the wheels are turning, thinking, wait a minute, if I don't come, I won't know, and if I don't know, I won't be responsible. Well, that might be true, but listen, ignorance isn't bliss when it comes to spiritual, eternal things. So if your mind works that way, and you can see that's how my mind works, I really needed to be saved, and it's like, even as a pastor, I still think that way, and so... Well, here's the deal then. You want to make sure you're in the Word and obedient to the Word because you have great, great privilege. What a wonderful time in history for us personally. We have it in print. We have it on computer. We have it on MP3 so we can get on our bike and listen to it in our discman. We have the Word of God readily and and very inexpensively available. And there's no reason we shouldn't be in it more. Well, they saw the living word. They saw the miracles of Jesus, and and His works, as I shared, were sufficient to convince and comfort John. But He didn't work for these people. Now, these three cities mentioned here, none of them exist. Today. They are ruins. They were devastated. They were destroyed. Why? Jesus said they would be. And I'm thinking if he says, it would have been better to be in Sodom, or Sodom would be better off than Sodom was a pretty bad place. And, and he's saying it's worse because of such great light and, and and Capernaum because he walked the light of the world in their midst, and they rejected the testimony of, of his witness to them there's one more thing and then we move on to the third of the four that we consider together this morning you know some people they have this thing where they're like well you know what what about the person that never heard okay I understand the one who's got knowledge God holds them accountable what about the person who never heard and some of you legitimately pondered that been troubled by it maybe people ask you and here's the way it works say there's someone in the middle of nowhere they're an idol maker. Their dad was an idol maker. Their grandpa was an idol maker. Their great grandpa was an idol maker. So for generations and generations and generations, idol makers. And one day that guy is sitting there and he's looking at this little idol who his whole people worship, the idols they make. And he looks at it and he thinks, you know, I made you, you didn't make me. And he thinks, if, if you don't exist unless I make you, I couldn't exist unless someone made me. I wonder who made me. Do you know the Bible says if a man searches for the Lord with all his heart, he'll find him? So in the middle of nowhere, with no Christian witness, with no missionary, with with, with no Bible, someone could look up at the stars and say, you know, somebody had to have made them. And it had to be somebody bigger than all this in order to make this. Who are you? Where are you? What are you? Reveal yourself to me. Do you know the Bible promises that God will reveal himself to them? Now, how will he do it? If you talk to missionaries, they'll say, I got to go. You got to support me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. The reason to support missionaries, though, isn't because we're afraid somebody might not hear, but because Jesus said to go and to send. And we want to be a part of that work, but not out of guilt or fear, but out of opportunity and a desire to be a part of the missions movement of our generation to get the word out. Well, listen, when God wanted to talk to Moses, he didn't send Aaron. He talked to him through a burning bush. When God wanted to talk to Balaam, Balaam wasn't listening. He spoke to him right through the donkey that Balaam had been riding. And he's spoken through a lot of donkeys since, some would say. But the bottom line is, Jesus can reach and will reach people. And if anyone's reaching out for God, you've got to know God is initiated. Do you know the Bible says that, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament his handiwork. There is nowhere where their witness isn't seen and heard. I think about Romans 120. It says,
0: for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now this is a good news, bad news kind of thing. For the one who is sharing their faith, it's important to remember that the ones who respond are the ones God has already called, and we are just privileged to be part of that process. It's not up to us to make the decision for them. However, for the one who has not accepted Christ, If they die in their sins, there will be no excuse. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace... It surrounds me And your peace It fills
1: my